Welcome to the Alt Asset Allocation Podcast. Exploring alternative investment opportunities available to the everyday investor. Here's your host, Ben Lakoff. Hello and welcome to the Alt Asset Allocation Podcast. Today's interview is with Lakshman Achuthan. Lakshman is Mr. Economic Cycles himself, and he has spent his entire career studying economic cycles. There are many different economic cycles in play at any given time, and it's actually a bit overwhelming. In this conversation, we discuss where we are in the economic cycles and some mistakes those using economic models to predict where we're going might make and where he thinks we could be going based on the leading indicators that he's following. Before you listen, please don't forget to like or subscribe to the podcast or even better, leave a review. If you're watching this on YouTube, hi, please subscribe to the channel and or give the video a thumbs up. All of these things really help new people find the podcast and it really helps keep this thing going. So thank you. There is a lot here, but cycles are very important to understand because even though it may feel like it's different this time, more often than not, it's actually not. Please enjoy this conversation with Lakshman Achuthan on all things cycles. Enjoy. Lakshman, I'm very excited to have you on today. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. We chatted a bit beforehand, and I, I've listened to you on Real Vision and Macro Voices and seen you on Bloomberg. But for my listeners that don't know who you are, can you give a little background of who you are and how and what you do at ECRI? Sure. Who am I? I, you know, so I'm a student of the business cycle. That's what I would, you know, I try to be humble, even though we have a lot of indicators that give us some conviction at times. And I've been doing this my entire professional career, which began around the 1990-91 recession and studying the cycles at the at the feet of the giants who came before me. So that's Jeffrey Moore, Jeffrey H. Moore. And he was the father of leading indicators, helped invent the idea of leading indicators and create the original indicators over, you know, basically in the 50s, 1950s. So, and then he was building on his mentor's work, Arthur Burns and Wesley Mitchell, about a hundred years ago, and they're working on the basic question of what the heck is going on, right? Because there's booms and there's busts and everybody has a theory and it didn't make any sense. Much as to say, I don't know how much has changed <laughs> today, but you know, they were getting whiplash, right? Huge swings up and down. You get the you get depressions and then you have the roaring 20s and then you have the depression. It's like, what the heck? And so Mitchell and Burns defined what a business cycle was. What is it? It's not two quarters of negative GDP, but that's a necessary, that's, that's not a necessary, but it's an insufficient condition. It mostly happens, but it, it doesn't always happen. Now, so they said, Here, here's what a recession is. It's a pronounced, pervasive, and persistent decline in output, income, employment, and sales. And then an expansion is when all those things are rising. And there was a consistency to that, both empirically when they looked backwards. They were looking all the way back to the Civil War in the U.S. And also when they were looking around them and around the world inside of free market oriented economies. And we can get into that. So 
that's kind of like what they called, they even wrote a book called The Business Cycle, The Problem and Its Setting. And they were just saying like, hey, what's the lay of the, of the land? What's the rough game board that we're playing on in free markets? And the business cycle is a very durable construct. And, and so then the next generation, Jeffrey Moore, their protege, works on leading indicators of the business cycle. Do we have any chance of seeing if it's going to turn and go the other way? That's, you know, 1950s, 60s, 70s technology. So since then, you know, I come in in the 90s and, and everybody who's at ECRI, the Economic Cycle Research Institute, we all, we're all taking that second generation of work, Jeffrey Moore's work, and, and he was a founder of ECRI with us, and moving it forward. And, you know, now I would describe what we do as a many cycles approach to looking at the economy and monitoring free market activity. And so stuff happens, right? There's the pandemic, there's the, you know, the market breaks, so there's some geopolitical thing, there's some shock. What does it all mean? How does it fit? Uh, is it a re recession or not? Is growth going to keep going one way or the other way? That's what these indicators help us divine. And there is a process and a lot of objectivity and data that goes along with it. Now, having said all that, and then I'll stop and, 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 and I want to hear what you have to say, but having said all that, there was a period many decades ago in academia where there are fads and fashions, okay? And people went away from cycles. They really wanted to go toward uh, econometric model building. There's uh, what we called, uh, we wrote a book 15 years ago and, and we called it physics envy. The economists wanted to be a hard science, right? And they want to say, hey, we can, we're just as good as you know, math and, 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 and medicine physics. And we can write these models and we have computers with statistics and we can optimize everything and figure it all out. And they really moved away from what we're, what we'll talk about today, which is cycles. That's a, kind of in the backwater. It's almost forgotten, a forgotten art in many ways. And those big institutional kind of moves are done on massive econometric models. Policy, monetary policy is run on these huge models. If we insert this and that, then I'll get a certain outcome. And um, the problem, of course, is this, going back to Mitchell and Burns, the, the problem in its setting. Business cycle is uh, tricky. There's this, all the psychology of us as groups, right? The groups of people making decisions are driven by fear and greed, all kinds of inventories and capital structures washing around and huge feedback loops that are not, they're too complex to model. And so you get these errors, they call them in academia, where it's like, oops, I didn't see that coming. And, and you get surprised one way or the other. So now I'll, I'll, I'll stop. I, long-winded answer. No, no worries. And well, those are, those are just airs to be just kind of optimize the inputs a little bit more and then you'll, you'll eliminate them next time. Right. That's a lot of optimizing. Works. Yeah. <laughs> you are Mr. Economic cycle. You've spent your whole career and, and these mentors that have been influential. It's very, very impressive. I understand that economic cycles are very hard to predict whether you're using these economic, these models or, or looking at cycles, 
But on your website, I found something that was interesting. So the Economist magazine noted in 2005 that ECRI is perhaps the only organization to give advance warning of each of the past three recessions. Just as impressive, it has never issued a false alarm. You say that these things are hard to predict and hard to forecast, but that that's a pretty darn good track record. Past performance is no indicator of future performance. I get that. But I'd, I'd like to start just right now where we are. This is a weird world. Stock markets, all-time highs, asset prices are super high, monetary policy like we've never seen before. And yet, jobless claims, all-time high, you know, it's a very weird world. How do you, knowing so much about economic cycles, how do you look at the current situation? You know, I, I stick with our knitting, you know, I stick with our basics, the KISS principle, right? Keep it simple and calling myself stupid. I'm just like, don't try to be too smart about this. We know cycles and we know that, you know, again, stuff happens, right? There's these big events and, and boy, oh boy, 2020 was huge with mind blowing kind of events that seem like they ought to dictate the world, right? And, and, and through that, we watch the cycle. So we can do that looking at three or four buckets of objective data that we essentially put into indexes ultimately. But there's the first and foremost, you want to know where you are before you even try to do anything beyond that. And to do that, you have to track your coincident data, which is output. So it could be industrial production or GDP, things that are being produced. Sometimes that's easy to measure like it's a car and sometimes it's a service. So it's a little more fuzzy to measure, but you try your best to measure it. And you're probably, you also acknowledge you're going to get it wrong. You're not going to be precise. This is not a precise science, but you're going to be roughly right. You're going to give a good guess. And there's, there's, so you look at your coincident data and your coincident data tends to be around government data because they're counting stuff up. And, and that's one key source of data is government data. It's imperfect, but it's a good guess. And, and, I, and I basically believe that, you know, people are trying their best to count stuff up. There may be some biases in there, but to the extent they are, they're probably consistent. They're not erratic biases. So over time, I get to see kind of some pattern of up and down. Now, Output, employment, income, and sales tanked. It peaked in February. It was the high point of 2020, right? And then starts the recession. And a recession is measured by how kind of deep it falls. So the depth of it, how diffuse it is. Is it, a, is it hitting everybody? And then the duration, how long does it go on? And... In this particular recession, right, given the nature of the turning off the lights, right? It was like, we just turned the economy off and everybody stayed home. So, so given that nature, the depth and the diffusion of the recession 
was literally off the charts. And, and you know, in, in, in a, away from an infection or something like this, where you turn everything off, the, the economy would fall. It might fall quickly. It might fall not so quickly, but it wouldn't just go to almost nothing, right? So you had this off the charts decline, which then knowing the cyclical dynamics, there's pent up demand. There's certain things that are springing it, wanting to push it to the upside. It means the minute there's a crack in the door and it starts to open up, you're going to do better than those extreme lows, which is going to uh, bring an end to the contraction. So just understanding that dynamic, let alone what we were seeing in our leading indicators, we knew in April that there, that the recession would be short because we didn't know exactly what the restart would look like, but the odds of a restart were growing every day, right? That there was going to be some You can't just keep it even. shut off forever. <laughs> yeah. So even if, even if there was no positive news, things would restart practically, you know, and you see a lot of people wanted to go out anyway, regardless by hook or by crook, right? That was going to restart stuff. So kind of knew that. Now this becomes interesting for investors who are, you know, they're getting dragged through everything. You see all the headlines in March and April, February, March, April, they were pretty spooky and the market itself was plunging. But going back to being a student of the cycle, you know, Pat, you know, past is no guarantee, but it tells you something. And in every, around the vicinity of every business cycle trough in a couple hundred years in the U.S. and in, you know, over half a century around the world, that's marked the bottom of the market. (laughs) So it's not so much that you had to know the exact story of anything, but on a directional basis, it's a pretty strong relationship. And when you get into managing cyclical risk, which is really what we do, it's all about like, hey, is the the cyclical risk rising or falling at any time in some area? And and there we're like, okay, yeah, off the chart cycle risk up until when you see the light at the end of the tunnel on the recession, we had good reason to say the recession was going to be short. So relatively speaking, cycle risk on the market is falling even though everything looks totally crazy. So that's where that cycle vantage point can give you some bearing. That's one example in, in when everything seems entirely crazy. And to be clear, in 2021, everything's going to seem crazy. It's all going to look like, hey, is this different this time? And, and favorite, on this favorite phrase, <laughs> yeah, it's the most expensive, you know, four words <laughs> in the English language. We joke about it, and but it certainly does feel different this time. And I know it probably always feels different this time, but the world is very different. And looking back at hundreds of years of cycles, but now post-globalization, post-Bretton Woods, all of these things, the world really is different. And I know you boil it down to human emotions and humans making these decisions. Ultimately, you can kind of figure out some cycles there. But you know, knowing all of these things, where are we in the current cycle? You said it's going to be crazy, but how do you start oh, thinking yeah. through this? I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We are in. So, so once we said end of recession or short recession and back in early April, we said the recession is super short, maybe shortest ever. And it looks like it was now. 
So you begin an economic cycle upturn. U.S. I mentioned that we do many cycles, right? So the science has advanced quite a bit over the last half century. And uh, so we have a lot of global analogous indicators globally. There's no global business cycle, but there is a global industrial growth cycle. And so we have a lot of good indicators there and they all were just really lit up in a very extreme way. There is a longstanding relationship that the depth of recession indefinitely, it's just in the beginning part, turn also. So a U.S. business cycle recovery combined with a global industrial growth recovery combined with, and, and stay with me here, a separate cycle, not a business cycle, not growth up and down, but a completely you know, almost completely separate cycle of inflation. And so on that cycle, we also had a strong upturn developing. So that has, again, from a cycle indicator dashboard view vantage point, we've got everything had been falling down. Recession kills inflation. So inflation had been plunging. The economy had been plunging. And then it all is headed up in really unambiguous ways, really clear ways, meaning that, and, and what I, speaking my language, cycle language, meaning that the forward-looking data, not the coincident data, but the leading index data that we maintain was rising in a pronounced way, a pervasive way. It just wasn't one piece kicking it up and it was persisting. It, it hadn't turned down. And, and so when you have those so-called three P's moving to the upside on growth and inflation, you know, that's what people have come to call the reflation trade. And you have seen that expressed in a lot of different ways. I think the bears have had to kind of go into hibernation in the latter part of last year. And the narrative, right, which had been kind of all over the place, to be honest, right, either with infection or politics, right, had to coalesce somehow around the reflation trade. And you've seen, you read all the letters and, and the listeners and, and viewers will read the letters. You see people have gone around to, yeah, there's this reflate and here's how I, here's the story I think that is behind it and so on and so forth. You know, we, we let the indicators do what they do. And then we try to, we try to figure out what's the story after we, but, but from the, but from the indicators, not so much from our own particular point of view, ideology, whatever we bring to work with us, you know, it's, it's really, what are the indicators saying? And, Again, going to these many cycles stuff approach that we have, we look at cycles inside the economy, inside the overall economy. So we're looking at manufacturing, construction, services, global industrial growth. And we know COVID's happening. It's not that we're not blind to that. But how does it manifest in these many cycles? And it was pretty darn clear, actually. It's... Uh, very strong manufacturing and goods upturn, very strong residential construction upturn, and not so much on services. You know, a little bit, but not really, not really anything that was kind of off to the races. And 
That fits with what you've probably heard described as the K-shaped recovery. You know, there's many angles on that K-shaped, right? One you could say is, oh, it's, it's all this stuff, like anything that's stuff. It's a house, it's a car, it's a jungle gym, it's a, you know, furniture set, whatever it is that your goods that you're getting, games, stuff for the house. So all that stuff, super strong, services not so much so the top part of the k is the goods the bottom part of the k is the services you can go to the jobs market you if you have an experiential people facing low paying job you're at the bottom leg of the k and you're in trouble and you're still in trouble to tell you the truth look at jobless claims now right so that's totally hasn't recovered. K, K, the K jobs recovery is in full effect. On the other hand, if you can work from home, like we're doing, and, and, and you don't have to kind of be in that front line wage earning position, then maybe you're even doing better in some cases, like oddly enough, right? And there's a lot of the income there is actually okay. And, and so the buying power of that income, which is the bulk of consumer spending on that, on the higher paying earners, the high, the higher wage earners, what are they going to do with that? They can't spend it on all that experiential stuff. So they are spending it on the goods. You have a huge spike. So now go back to the global industrial upturn, massive spike. You know, it, it'll, it'll, it'll compete with Bitcoin and Tesla on commodity prices, right? On industrial commodity price growth. And we track that quite closely. It's, it's very, very strong. Overall, it's at more than probably around 11-year high now. If you look at the non-exchange traded industrial commodities, which kind of filter out the easy speculation, they're at all-time highs, near all-time highs, ever, okay? So... That's strong, you know, now, now, so we're very much in the reflation trade. It is totally not over. Still plenty of time to make hay on that. Trees don't grow to the sky. Cycles don't keep going one way. They wouldn't be a cycle if they did. <laughs> and so this is going to top out and we're on the lookout for that. You know, that's, a, that's our job is to, it's almost, it's almost as simple as saying, is it up or is it down? Is it, it's binary. And so whenever we're in one direction, in this case up, our job is to watch for what are the situations where it could turn back down. Yeah. And I get that. And that, that totally makes sense. But, you know, going back to this time, it's different. I, I just think with this, this wealth inequality and change and a, a big portion of the population doing very well, if not better and spending and driving this good prices and inflation. But that other half, and I don't know what the percentages are, but there there has to be, there's likely going to be more and more government support, which then th that impacts it in some other way. There's so many of these different cycles and the way that they're uh, yeah. relating to each other. But knowing that, does that, does that impact the way that you're looking at this inflation cycle? The short answer is no. And, and I'm being super clinical here, which does not mean I don't care about half of the consumers that are hurting. I, I just want to say that I really do see that. I'm not 
blind to it. It is real. I think, you know, as a society or policy, you got to think that through. I'm not here necessarily. I mean, my, my professional life is not about the policy prescription, but knowing where we are in the cycle. In the end, the cycle's still going up, okay, with or without the people that are hurting who will probably be getting some more support, right? We, we see that there has been uh, a couple of fiscal efforts to support so far. There's going to be more. I think we, we all understand that. Un- until the services side and the, those people facing lower wage jobs are fully back online, there's a gap. And, you know, we hope it's sooner that they're back online. And even when they're back online, quite frankly, they don't fully support the lower half of consumers. It's not, you know, it it is still pretty tight. There's tight belts there. But having said all that, you get another stimulus. What does it, what does it do? Does it change anything radically in the way that we think about cycles? And the short answer is no. We, this is an interesting thing to, to talk about. I don't, I, so there's, there's a lot of data out there <laughs> and whether or not it's uh, worthwhile, there's more and more data being collected all the time. And so you have this whole explosion of big data. I'm going to mine the big data to tell me what's going on. And there's interesting stuff there. And so far, when we look at that and we, when we do, it improves on the margin, sometimes more than less, but rough, pretty much on the margin. Now casting. Where are we now? And that, that's a that's a you know a new way of saying coincident data. All right. So the big data tends to maybe sharpen up the clarity of the coincident data. It doesn't tell you anything about the future stuff. I'm afraid. You know. I mean, we keep looking. You basically have. Uh, a few different sources of data. You have the government data we talked about earlier. You have the market data, which is what it is. You know, it's real and you got to deal with it. And and then you have survey data or other data that you can collect. And survey data is relatively new. It probably is like really started coming up in the 70s. And we use all three sources of data. When we look at our indexes and we say something profound has happened, is it going to change the way we look at that something? No, because we don't change our indexes. Our indexes are expressing a handful of key drivers of the cycle. I mean, there aren't an unlimited number of drivers of inflation cycles. There's a, you know, a finite set. We have a good handle on that. We're tracking those underlying inflationary drivers very, very closely to the extent and a, a development like stimulus. We're going to send out a $1,000 check, a $2,000 check. To the extent that that impacts one of the key drivers of inflation, it's implicitly in the inflation indicators. Now, Having said all this, objectively, boiling down all those indicators, those objective ones, they hit a 13-year high last Friday. Okay, so we have the reflation trade. It's on. It's business growth rate cycle is up. Inflation cycle is up. And on the inflation cycle side, 
the forward-looking data, when it's going in one direction, we're always looking, hey, did it fall? Did it fall? Did it fall? And I just, you know, the latest update is, no, it hit a new high. I don't know how high it's going to go. I can't predict the predictor, but I can tell you there's no downturn in sight. And that's for the next uh, two or three quarters in inflation. So your models are seeing that this inflation cycle is pointing up and that is useful. It looks out for the next couple quarters, but not super, super long-term. Is that correct? Correct. That is okay. correct. And what are and you, what are you watching with this? You're watching for the, the, the slope of it to, to lower to, to what are you watching here? Yeah. All different versions of Right. So I'm looking for there's different growth rates that we're watching. We're also watching the level of the future inflation gauge in particular. We'd like to watch the level of that. And so when the level reaches a 13 year high, it's just like, hey, there's no downturn in sight. And when we look at the story behind that, forget about the speculation that's out there. We know that there's a business cycle recovery underway. It's, it's not over at all. There's no downturn there on the growth side, notwithstanding the, the COVID impact right now. It's still to the upside. That's the objective data showing that. When we look at how could that be? How can that be with all this going on? The story remains for the time being that construction on the residential side is, is, is strong. And the demand on the good side is very, very strong. Anecdotally, you know, we buy a lot of our goods from overseas, right? We, we know that. And uh, so one little snippet in there is that the price of a container that you put stuff in, that you want to sell to the United States, has uh, gone up, I think it's about two and a half times since last year in China. So you're producing in China, you're exporting your stuff. You saw some of the export data came out the other day, uh, a little stronger, and you got to ship it. And there's not enough stuff to, there's not enough boxes to put it in. The demand far outpaces the supply of boxes. And so you can have the price go up two and a half times. That's a cycle. This is cyclical. It can't, you know, trees don't grow to the sky. It's not going to keep happening. But boy, it's fun when it's happening if you're the container owner or renter or whatever. And, and so you make hay now. And that's my overall sentiment would be make hay now, but you can't put it on autopilot. There's going to be some turn this year. Right. And I don't see it yet in any cycle except for global industrial growth. There's some, our longest leading indicators on global industrial growth, not country specific. It's really supply chain stuff. They do show some topping out. And, and those long leading indicators are really good at giving us a yellow flag. They, they don't tell us a lot about the specific timing. We need to see our shorter leading indicators begin to confirm what we've seen in the longer leading indicators. So we're watching them closely. They're still you know, up or a little flat, but no, no downturns. So we're watching those very closely. So far, so good. That makes a lot of sense. I'm curious, knowing that we talked earlier that these huge economic models are influencing Fed uh, policy, is that right? 
we talked about some of the shortcomings of these, these economic models and you're optimizing for this and that, knowing that the Fed is making decisions based on these models and that those are, can be somewhat disconnected from the actual cycles that are going on. Where are they mostly different and at how does this impact what they should be doing versus what they're actually doing? And does that impact the, the new way that the cycle is going? How do you think through that? Yeah, that's such a good question. <laughs> and it's changed over time. And so full disclosure, if you do a little Googling, you'll, you'll see that Jeffrey Moore, my mentor, was also Alan Greenspan's professor. So Greenspan, at one point, you know, circa 1990s or vintage 1990s, he's got different vintages, I would say. And so vintage 1990s, he was the maestro, I think. They even wrote books that, about him like that, right? Because he famously did not, he did this thing in the mid nineties from that are that is consistent with cycles that I don't think anybody really understands in the mainstream kind of uh, financial areas. And he did a preemptive hike in 94. It blew up Orange County, I think, and a couple of hedge funds because they were on the wrong side of that. And it was the worst, one of the worst years in the bond market, 94. And then he did a preemptive easing, preemptive meaning he moved before inflation. And how do you do that? You might need a leading indicator. <laughs> and so, so that's the link to the future inflation gauge, right? So in that moment, you have a really interesting chapter in monetary policy, where if you're a big player like the Fed, that can impact the economy. And you can smooth out the cycle a little bit. If you think about the way cycles will work, if you kind of at, you know, smooth out the top and the bottom, it's a smoother cycle. That's actually a lot more possible to navigate as a decision maker than one that's going like this. Right? So, and for employers and for, for, for making longer-term plans and executing longer-term strategies, all of that is a much more fertile landscape. The 90s was actually a pretty amazing decade. You had 20 million jobs. It's a lot of jobs. <laughs> okay. So that was then. Now, if you're not doing that and you're kind of playing catch-up on the inflation cycle. Ooh, it got out of the bag, I got a stomp on it. Or, oh, it's too low, I need to ease, I'm, I'm, I'm too tight for too long. Then, if you think about the way cycles work, you're actually making them more volatile. So I think it's super expensive that the Fed doesn't really understand inflation cycles. But, you know, we're, we're in the we're in the this one area of cycle research and you know big institutions tend to think that they know what they're doing right and that's the lay of land so it is what it is now in the more recent times we had a inflation cycle upturn in 2016 and that sounds like ancient history i know it's like four or five years ago but so you have this inflation cycle upturn and the central banks around the world not only the Fed, they, they have, you know, they have a get together each year and they get together and they were together in Portugal and uh, they had their mission accomplished moment. It was an inflation cycle upturn, just a cycle. And they're like, Hey, we did it. We've, 
gotten rid of lowflation, it's all good, we're good to go, we're tightening. And of course, things that are cyclical turn, as I've been talking about, and the future inflation gauge, which correctly anticipated the reflation of 2016 at a time when inflation expectations were near their lowest readings in the summer of 16, they, they then turned down in the summer of 18. Now, still pretty ancient history, but I will remind you that all the bond, the kings and whatever, you, you know, the gurus were talking about the 10-year at three, four or five or more percent is definitely a bond bear market. And you're a dummy if you don't know this, right? And well, the fig is immune to all that stuff and it's just going down. It's like as ah, an inflation cycle downturn. <laughs> it is, it is, you know, and then we have to deal with that. We're like, whoa, okay, you know, what's the story? How do we get it? We make the call. Bond market doesn't top out, the yields don't top until I think October, November. And then of course, Mr. Powell, who's behind the curve, talks to Miss Woodruff in December and says, we're nowhere near neutral. We're super easy. And then now more recent history, you get the Powell pivot in 19, you know, and all this stuff. So I think it makes for a lot more drama that they're not watching inflation cycles. So right now they've made this promise, right? They had to lower rates a lot, push out. I mean, a lot is putting it mildly, right? They pushed out a lot of QE uh, or whatever you want to call it. I don't want to get into the semantics of it. There's a lot of liquidity, a lot of support, okay? And uh, you've also got the fiscal side, as we talked about, working. And we've got a pledge from the Fed saying two things. I guess they kind of remember that they screwed it up in 16, 18. And so they say, well, we're not even gonna to try to forecast it anymore. We're just gonna wait until it gets really hot. And then we're gonna take our time and make sure it's really hot. And then we'll maybe act. I mean, they said it in a much more drier uh, way. Than Essentially that, think, just that. <laughs> that. That's what they did. Really? They took many pages to say that in very erudite ways. Okay. so. There we are. And then they also talked about the K-shaped stuff or the inequality, you know, the, the, that is present, right? And you can see in certain demographics. And I think the Fed is looking at Black unemployment or Black participation in, in jobs, let alone other minorities, although some other minorities are a little higher in their participation. And I think they're very reticent to be tight before that unemployment starts to drop somewhat more noticeably, okay? So that's another new factor because before that was probably on the back burner for decades and now they've kind of brought that into the room. Okay, long story short, they're trying their best to leave rates low. Very recently, Charlie Evans was out and he started to murmur something about you know, you know how they jawbone. And I think it's, it, it was interpreted as maybe just a little teeny bit less dovish. Okay. So whatever, we'll have some of that because inflation's rising as we, as we know. And what'll get interesting is when it goes above 2% or the upper bound of some target they have, is it PCE, this or that, whatever, they're going to, it's going to start pushing that probably. 
And how does that go? What is their reaction function? You know, they do have this tendency if the stock market falls to react, but, you know, and the question there is what, what is that reaction function? Do they, you know, they let 5% correction go is 10% too much, you know, where do they, and they don't, the problem is they don't have a lot that they can do, right? When they're, when interest rates are low, they don't have all that much to go places to go. You could look at Japan, they start buying different bonds. They start in, in Japan, they actually, they yeah. actually started buying equities. So I'm not sure where that goes, but I can say that they're going to get challenged because inflation will rise probably a little bit more than expected for now. And as long as the economic growth continues to recover, which it looks set to do, probably try to let that ride as long as they can. And the stock market may be fine with that because again, if economic growth is going up, default risk is lower than it was. Earnings are better than they were. And so the negative of the higher interest rate is mostly offset, if not more than offset. The part I would really warn people about is if you ever see me on TV or talking or something, and I'm talking about a growth rate cycle downturn, <laughs> okay, then I would say, hey, that's a good time to rein in some risk relative to whatever your risk profile is. Right. So keep the, keep the growth rate, <laughs> growth cycle going up. Then inflation cycle going up is also fine. It's, o- it's okay yeah. for now. Yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, I think there's just, obviously this is what people are using your data and looking at cycles, but there's just this massive ability to almost front run and forecast the decision-making of the Fed, assuming these leading indicators are slightly more accurate than the way that they're making decisions. You can you can see these things before they're doing kind of the knee-jerk reaction to them. But the thing, you know, I, the, the one and thing- it's not I would, an exact science, right? <laughs> yeah, it's not an exact science. Oh, look, I've lived this. I've tried it. I paid for my honeymoon using the fig, you know, so that was good. <laughs> and that was, that was betting on, on rate you, cuts. Oh, uh, because <laughs> you thought into- inflation was coming, so you wanted to pay now or, or No, later? there was back in the day when interest rates were up, <laughs> you know, when you had a little room below between ancient where they history, were. Ancient history, right? an interest ancient rate was history. something. <laughs> so I got married in 2001. And so as early before that, in there's a recession, right? Typically, interest rates have to fall. And typically, the Fed is late. And my father-in-law at the time introduced, he's like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. And he was in the markets and he was like, oh, you should check out those euro dollars. That's a very frictionless way to play your view on rates. And so it's basically a, it's basically a Fed's funds rates, right? So, so it's a very liquid market and so on and so forth. And I did really well with a small amount of money, which was nice. <laughs> and then you learn that, oh gosh, it's not that easy because what can happen if you, if you come back to like, go back to 2018, I'm more sophisticated there, right? I've learned a lot, a lot of, a lot of wear and tear on the old body between 2000 and 2018. But you get, a, you get an inflation cycle downturn call and uh, it, nobody reacts. So this is a typical experience of someone watching cycle indicators like we do. And not that many people do, right? To tell you the truth, right? So you, you also need to be a certain breed that you're 
totally fine disagreeing with 90, 95% of the room at certain times. Like you gotta be built that way. Otherwise this stuff is not for you. I mean, you have to find out a different way of filtering it into your process. Now, the, in this instance, you get the inflation cycle downturn in the summer of 18, yields don't top out till October, November. So you need to learn that patience of watching the market and seeing how it's doing and waiting for it to turn. But by the time it begins to turn, what you have as a cycle watcher is your, your prior, in a Bayesian sense, your prior is already set. You're prepared. You're ready. You can have more conviction. Oh, that makes sense. And having that, having that conviction to outlast through those times, it's, it's definitely not easy. Very, yeah, it's, a, it's, an, it's an interesting thing, right? So, this is, so if you go to working with institutions, we're, we're, a lot of us are individuals, and we can personally take a decision. I am going to follow this process. I, I, you know, I'll try it out. I'll learn about it or whatever. Institution, very tough. You know, they've got their, you know, the firm has its asset allocation. And if you deviate off that, you better be prepared to, you know, by hook or by crook, something's going to happen, right? And so, and at these turning points is when, if you, you use the word models a couple of times, and I just want to clarify, we don't have any models, but it's a great distinguishing word. A model is often, more, mostly, an extra, a, a very sophisticated extrapolation of relationships. And so to the, and I think most people are using models and institutions are. And so they, they get set on a direction. Let's say right now that everybody's set on reflation. Okay, so the model is optimized on the reflation and it's gonna push. The problem is the cycle underneath it, growth and inflation are not linear. Those have ebb and flows to them. So our indicators, which are directional indicators, not so much magnitude, more about is the direction up or down. So if the indicators roll, the primary information is inflection point directional change. And if you have a model pushing up and an indicator has rolled down, the divergence is huge. And following this down means you have to leave everybody. So your pricing is probably good. Uh, but then the question is, how long can you hold that position? So you got to kind of find different processes, depending how comfortable you are deviating <laughs> to manage that. And I got to tell you, you know, it's like eight or nine times out of 10, that stuff gets resolved towards the cycle. And occasionally the cycle will recover back up this way, but it's almost always this way. And so that's the, what we do is we kind of work on how different groups would express that in their own efforts. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. If, if these things seem easy, you're, you're probably not incorporating or thinking about everything, right? Uh, and talking about easy, there's a lot of like rules of thumb and in this industry, you know, 
like you said earlier, economic rate or economic downturn, cut the rates. Like, but all of these things are changing if your rates are at zero. But I, I, I'm curious for the average investor understanding that cycles play a way in the way that I should be investing and allocating my my portfolio. What's the best way to digest this information? Is it looking at the fig, reading your reports? But you know, I I don't have time to look at all of these indicators and, and cycles and how they interrelate. What's the best way for the average investor to kind of digest this? You know, oh, this is super over. You know, the warning label on this is it's very simplified. But I'd say watch the weekly leading index. That's out every Friday. So we have a Twitter feed business cycle, and every Friday we'll throw up the the weekly index. And other times we'll put in other things about cycle turns. And if the weekly leading index starts to roll over in a persistent way, meaning for you know a couple of months, then that's a, a good time, I think, d- depending on your, it's relatively speaking, but that may be a good time to be pulling in your risk around equities. I'm just, I, I'm, I'm saying, you know, Cycles and growth relate roughly to equities and, 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 and risk. It's not so much that equities go down. Well, let me clarify something here. You know, because the Fed comes out and says, hey, I'm doing QE all day long. I'm going to whatever, you know, Mario Draghi, all, whatever it takes. They say something, it's going to make the market go up. Okay. But what happens is that corrections, big ones, double digit percentage point falls are a cluster. They cluster inside growth rate cycle downturns. So unless you want to hang out for the drama, right? I mean, a day trader might want that, you know, they're in, they're in that, they're going to be, but, but the risk of a correction of double digit percentage points, above 10%, above 20% in some cases, those are all inside of growth rate cycle slowdowns. The weekly leading index anticipates those. So weekly leading index can go down and the market can go up. That doesn't mean the relationship doesn't work. It's just that your risk profile in that moment is very, very different. And on the flip side, when the weekly leading index is going up, your odds of a large correction like that are extremely low. So it works both ways. You know, the, the future inflation gauge, you gotta, you gotta watch that. I mean, it's, it's, it's up for the time being. So, you know, interest rates, if you're in the bond area, you've got growth up, you've got inflation up. So yield curve steepens, you know, that's there. And, and the bond guys have to make money where they can. I think the main thing I would say is that you can't leave things on buy and hold, right? You can't just leave, you can't own it and leave it. It just does not. I mean, it would be nice, but you can't do it. And and you also have to deal with what everybody's been talking about for years. You're saying you're looking at single digit returns, partly because your typical 60-40 portfolio has 40% of it sitting there not getting a lot, right? So how do you actually perform? You want to retire, you want to do whatever, you have some goals, 
that are higher than a few single digit returns. And, and, and you know, I would say the macro, conversely to what people think, in fact, right? So some people are thinking, oh, rates are low, so macro doesn't matter so much. I, I would actually go the other way and say macro is going to matter much more than you think. And, you know, I don't know exactly where it is, but somewhere in 2021, there's a big pivot. Yeah, that's that's really important. There's so much going on. It's very difficult, but I think that's that's very valid. And I'll link all of those things in the show notes for sure. Pivoting a bit and we're bumping yeah. up against the time, but, you know, mentors have obviously be, been very, very helpful in your life. So Jeffrey Moore is obviously a big one. I'm curious how you approached him for the first time and what advice you would give to younger people listening to the show, perhaps on, on approaching mentors and thinking through incorporating mentors as a key part of their life. I'm a big believer that I don't know anything. (laughs) So I'm like, I don't know anything. And the more I know, the more I know, I don't know. So I love, I mean, you're in a great seat to get to talk to all the people that you talk with. I mean, it's a really wonderful kind of moment even to have access the way we do with the technology and whatnot to do that. Now, in my particular case, one of my professors had received her doctorate. Dr. Moore, Jeffrey Moore was one of her dissertation advisors. And I was going to go, it's just, you know, it's just luck sometimes. I was going to go to Wall Street. And, you know, I, I knew something was, didn't fit for me. I, mean, you know, I was going through the interviews and everything. And, and uh, she said to me, why don't you come up to Columbia and, and hang out with Moore for a few days? And I loved first his openness. Otherwise I, I would have never gotten in the door. And second, I immediately took to his big idea, right? It's, it's that, market-oriented economies have endogenous cycles. And then I, what the way I heard it, because he speaks very much in academic terms, I was like, whoa, this is a big unifying thing for all those different countries that I backpacked through in my semester off from college that my parents didn't want me to take. When I had to be, con- I had to live on a budget and convert from Deutschmarks to francs to lira, and I was blowing my budget every day, as you do. And then I was like, "Whoa!" I got bailed out because the dollar got stronger. How the heck does that work? Remember, in the mid '80s, the dollar was getting strong, and so I was like, "Ah, this all make this is the unifying thing: cycles and free markets." And one of the things I didn't even talk about it here is that. The same drivers of the cycle in the United States work in the UK, they work in Japan, they work in China, they work in India, they work in Korea, they work in South Africa, they work in Poland, they work in now Russia. They didn't work in the USSR. We tried back way back when, or or the earlier group. So in trying to break the idea Where do cycles not work? Well, in a truly managed economy, some massive disaster like, you know, uh, a volcano exploding for six in ash for six years of winter, or uh, a really big war, nothing that we've seen recently, right? But a really big war. And those are places where cycles don't work. And outside of that, cycles are 
de rigueur. And so you got to have, you know, sometimes the opportunity presents itself. It's just about seeing it and saying, I want to do this. Because I walked away from a better check on Wall Street to get nothing, basically, at Columbia, but to get to hang out with more. And we had the opportunity to leave the university, which we did in the mid-90s, and just went independent. And as far as I know, last thing I'll close on is I think we're the only one of the only institutes that's like not funded by a special interest. I can I can pretty much tell you that half of our clients are bullish, half of them are bearish, half of them are conservative, and half of them are maybe a little more conservative, and then the rest are liberal. And then, you know they really want the objectivity. You know, it's not about the ideology so much. This is, this is what makes up markets. You have really, really smart side people on both sides, both sides. of the you trade with do. strong, strong conviction and rationale for, for both of them, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, I've had, and I've obviously met a lot of business people too, and investors, and, you know, one of, you know, you've heard the, the thing that, like, the, the markets are just like this wonderful casino, but they change the rules every day. And one of the reasonably consistent rules, although the details change, are cycles. You know, and, and the rest of it's, you know, mayhem. Oh, yeah. That's exciting. <laughs> it, it is indeed. Well, Lakshman, it's been a really, it's, it's been a pleasure today Thank to you. have you on and you've really helped me and hopefully my listeners as well understand how important business cycles are and how they work together. But there's certainly a lot there. And like you said, I mean, uh, the, now the more I know about cycles, the more I know, I don't know. And uh, this is very apparent, but either way, I really appreciate it. Where where would you like to leave my listeners? Where where can they go to find out more about you, business cycles? Where would you like to send them? Yeah, I think the easiest way to, to kind of keep an eye on what we're saying probably is Twitter, which is business cycle is our handle or our website, which is businesscycle.com. There's a lot, we try to give uh, a great deal of information publicly. So it's, 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 there's a lot of public information on that website. If you, if you go hang out there for a half an hour and dig through it. And then shoot us uh, questions and, and whatnot, and, and that we will try to answer them as, as best we can. I mean, we do. And if, and if, you know, have us back on for another interview. I mean, if someone asks me a question, I will answer it <laughs> straight. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'll definitely get some questions before from the audience and, and okay. slot those in. Well, Thank really you. appreciate it. Thank you so much. And uh, happy new year. To you too. Thank you. There you have it. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate your support. Show notes, transcript, links, and more can be found on our website at altassetallocation.com. If you'd be so kind, please share this with anyone you think might be interested or get some value from this conversation. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out. I'm always happy to hear them. Lastly, if you're on YouTube, please like the video or subscribe to the channel. If you're listening to the audio version of this, please subscribe to the podcast and or leave a review. This really helps more people find the podcast, and I really appreciate it. Thanks again, and hope you have a fantastic day. Happy investing.